song and beautiful thought. Thank you, Adam and Shane, for that. This morning, if you'd like to turn, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. If you would turn, beginning in verse 12, Brother Dustin Sisko is going to come and he's going to read our sermon text in its entirety for us this morning. I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things, for I become like you, Gentiles, free from those laws. You did not mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely you remember that I was sick when I first brought you the good news. But even though my condition tempted you to reach me, you did not despise me nor turn away. You took me in and cared for me as though I were an angel from God, even when Jesus Christ himself. Where's that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? I'm sure you would have taken your own eyes and given them to me if it had been possible. Have I now become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? Those false teachers are so eager to win your favor, but their intentions are not good. They're trying to shut you off from me so that you will pay attention only to them. If someone is eager to do good things for you, that's all right, but let them do it all the time, not just when I'm with you. Oh, my dear children, for as if I'm going through labor pains for you again, and they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. I wish I were with you right now so I could change my tone, but at this distance, I don't know how else to help you. Thank you very much, brother. Today's text, if you've been with us as we've been studying the book of Galatians, as we've been going through it, you might notice a bit of a contrast uh, in, in Paul's tone and approach. For the most part, to this point in our study of Galatians, we've seen Paul mainly using intellectual appeals, is what I would refer to it as. He's, he's used doctrinal and theological arguments for why the Galatian Christians should turn away from the law and embrace fully the law-free gospel of Jesus. He's used scriptural references to make that same argument to them. But today, this text seems to have a bit of a different flavor to it, if you will. He, he takes a much more familial tone with them, a more friendly tone. We, we see here in this text, I believe, the heart of Paul the pastor, Paul the friend, who's recalling their history together, who is sharing his heart for them, who is appealing to them on the basis of their friendship and his love and care for them. And I will say this, just really kind of an aside here, but I think it's good for us to see Paul this way, because I know sometimes I hear from some of you that you kind of have this view of Paul as being a bit harsh, terse-type person, difficult almost to deal with if you disagreed with him. But, but what we see in this text is really, I think, the heart of Paul for the people that he knew and had discipled and had taught. And I also think we see this in this text, and we will highlight this throughout it. I think we see an example for us to follow in dealing with difficult people or even people that we love but who hurt us. So look with me again at the text, Galatians chapter 4. Let's read those first few verses again and spend a little bit of time looking at this background that he has with these Galatian believers. Beginning in verse 12, he said, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. 
And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Before we get into looking at this and discussing it together, let's pray and ask God's favor on our time this morning. Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we've already had today, many of us in small group settings in Sunday school, to hear your word and to discuss your word. Father, the, the chance here in this room to pray together, to sing praises to you, the one that we should want more than anything else. Father, the chance to read your word together as we've already spoken about the great blessings that you've promised us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, now as we take time, a brief moment out of our week to sit together and to think deeply about a short section of your holy word, I pray that our hearts and minds would be prepared for this moment, that you would help us to understand these things, that you would help us to focus on these things and not be distracted by things inside or outside of this room. Lord, help my words to be concise and clear, Lord, that they would not in any way cloud the teaching of your word, that your people would hear it clearly, and their hearts and minds would be turned to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, so here, let me just go ahead and say this at the, the jump, because I know we have different people in here, and I've talked to different ones of you after different sermons, and so I know some of you may be a little bit excited about what you see as some things that we could really get into in a technical way in these first few verses. There are no doubt some theological weeds, as I like to refer to them, that we could get caught up in in this text, in these first few verses. And I've spent hours this week in those theological weeds, but I believe that in this text, Paul's appeal and Paul's tone is pastoral and it is personal, and I really want my presentation of this text to reflect that. So we're not going to get caught up in those theological weeds this morning, those things exactly. That verse or this verse or this word, come see me later and we'll discuss all those things. But I really want us to see here Paul the friend imploring his friends to beware of the things that are going on in their life. So here he, he does begin in verse 12, by giving them an imperative, right? He's giving them a command, something he's telling them to do. He says, I entreat you, right? I implore you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. And I believe he is here appealing to what he has appealed to for four and a half, three and a half chapters so far that we've seen. And it's this idea for them to give up the law, give up the ceremonial aspects of the law, give up trying to be accepted by God because of circumcision or because of dietary laws or because of these sort of ceremonial things and to embrace, again, what I would call the law-free gospel. Embrace the fact that you have been accepted and are fully accepted by God, not because what you have done or what you can do but because of what Christ Jesus has done, right? They believed that at one time. They've been turned from that by some false teachers, and he's begging them to turn back to that true gospel. 
So he implores them to do that. And then in verse 13, I think he gives a reason for his heartfelt appeal to them. And we see this, this history between them. And it's so beautiful to think about. It's as if he's saying, Galatians, y'all remember how we first met, right, Paul and this person? Well, you remember how we first met? I came to town, uh, I came to your area, and I had to stay in that region because of an illness that I had, right? I had this illness, I couldn't continue traveling, I had to stay with you for a while. But though I came to town with an illness, though everything wasn't perfect for me at the time, you accepted me, and you supported me, you were hospitable to me, you took care of me, you nursed me, although it was a bit of a trial to you, right? Although it was a difficulty that I came to you with all this illness, you took care of me in a loving and kind way. And he goes so far as to say, you took care of me as if you would an angel or Christ Jesus himself. Right, so there's a strong language of how well they cared for Paul during this illness that he had. It, to me, it really bears some semblance to the story of the Good Samaritan, right? This outsider that they don't know that they're putting themselves out to care for him, but they're doing that. And it's very surprising because in this day and time, especially among these Greek people, Greek background people the Galatians are, there was this strong belief where illness was tied to spiritual things. So someone that had an illness, you might would think, was stricken with a demon, right? Was possessed in some way. Was dealing with the effects of, of negative demonic work in their life. And so a stranger comes to town and he's sick, which might mean that he is dealing with a demon or some type of evil forces in his life, it would have been very expected for these Galatians to have said, no thanks. We have nothing for you. We're not allowing you to come among us. But Paul says, that's not what you did. You didn't reject me. You accepted me. You loved me. You cared for me. Right? He goes so far in verse 15 to say, as you cared for me so well, that if you could have taken out your very own eyes to have given them to me, I believe that you would have done it. And we know from the book of Acts that, that there's a reciprocated love and care. It's not just that they cared well for him, so they cared well for him physically, but Paul spent a great deal of time, better part of two years, among the people of Galatia, and then on his second missionary journey, he went back to them. And then on his third missionary journey, he went back to them again. Right? So they cared for him physically, and he cared for them spiritually. And they had been together for years, and they knew each other well. And he clearly felt blessed by their friendship. And as we see in this text, verse 15, when he says, What then has become of your blessedness? That shows us that at least at one point in time, they also felt blessed and happy because of their relationship with Paul. So there's this mutual respect and love and care in the past in this relationship between Paul and the Galatians. So point one this morning is this. Paul had a history with the Galatians, and I mean that in a very uh, kind and, and beautiful way, right? Not He had a history as if things were not good. He had a, 
very optimistic history with the Galatians. It was a good history, a beautiful history, a mutual blessedness. He was blessed physically because of them, and they were blessed spiritually because of him. He was a pastor to them. He was a mentor to them. He was a discipler to them. It was this wonderful relationship. And so he said, well, that's great. So what's happened that now he's having to say to them, what happened to that blessedness? What has happened to your happiness? Why do you not count yourselves as blessed and happy because of me anymore? In verse 16, which we're about to read, we see that some of them now apparently even count him as an enemy. So what could come between a group of people that loved each other that much to cause that to come about? Well, look with me there in verse 16 and we'll see. Paul said, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. We're going to stop there for a moment. You know, I can remember uh, whenever I was probably high school is whenever it happened the most. Uh, I would come home and I'd be talking to my dad and there was something that I wanted to convince him that I should be able to do or we as a family should do something we should change, right? I should be able to stay out later. I should be able to have this vehicle. I should be able to have this phone or whatever it was. And so, you know, the way that I would convince him is saying, well, they say that teenagers should be able to stay out later, right? Or, well, they say that by the time you're this old, you should have a cell phone. You know what my dad's reply, I can remember this vividly. What my dad's reply always was, who are they? Right? That, that was his answer. Dad, they say that teenagers should get to stay out until at least midnight. Who are they? And so, well, you know people. And so here, I do think it's very important, as if my dad were sitting here this morning saying, Paul says, they make much of you, and he says, who are they? I I do want to divine for us, who are they? If you haven't been with us, this may not make as much sense. So just briefly, give me a moment here. Those that have been with us through Galatians, you know this answer. That's okay. They are the false teachers that had come into the region of Galatia. So Paul goes to Galatia, as we read just a moment ago. He spends time with them. These people were Gentiles, they were not Christians, Then he takes the gospel to them and he shares the gospel of Jesus Christ about Jesus' perfect life and atoning death and resurrection and how through faith they could be saved from their sins and set free and given eternal life and reconciled to God. And he preaches this message to the Galatians and they joyfully receive it. They become Christians. They profess faith in Jesus Christ and they're following Christ, but in, at some point between then and when he writes this letter, these false teachers, likely the Judaizers as we call them, come in among them and they start teaching, yes, belief in Jesus is good, but you need belief in Jesus and, which I always say is immediately a red flag. When somebody tells you that to be saved or be forgiven of your sins or be promised eternal life, that you need faith in Jesus, and I don't care what's coming next. It's inappropriate. And that's what they say. You need faith in Jesus, 
and circumcision. You need faith in Jesus and adherence to the Old Testament law. And so they've come in and they've told them these things. And that's who he's talking about in verse 17 when he says, They, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. So what's he, what's he really saying there? He's saying that some of you have bought into their message. Galatians. Some of you believe them and what they've taught so much that you now count me as your enemy. These false teachers had come in and they had not only come to the Galatians and taught them lies, but they had become between the Galatians and their friend and mentor Paul as well. Because they had come in and they had told them these lies, and they had turned their hearts away from Paul, and I think Paul's concerned that they're also going to turn their hearts in some ways away from Christ Jesus. So let me stop here for a moment, because I think that there are probably some of us in this room who can personally relate to what Paul's dealing with here. I'm just going to give a couple of examples, but we could give many more, I know. But I've seen this situation play out time and time again, and probably the two instances where I see it most commonly, the first one would be in marriage, right? There, there's a healthy marriage. There's a husband and a wife who love one another and who are committed to one another, and they've been together for a while. But then one day, one of them meets somebody else that seems innocent at first. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's somebody at the gym. Maybe it's the person that works at the grocery store, whatever it is, they meet this person and they are going to see this person regularly, either at work or at the gym or wherever. And so they start having conversations. And, and this new person makes much of them, to use Paul's language here. The idea is that this, these Judaizers were courting the Galatians. They were pursuing the Galatians. And that's what we see in that scenario. Sometimes a husband or a wife meets this new coworker, this new friend, and all of a sudden this person that comes into their life starts courting or pursuing them, but not for a good reason. They start saying things like, well, you are, you're too beautiful or too smart to be stuck in a place like this. You deserve to be able to travel to more places. You deserve to have a nicer vehicle. Maybe even something like, if you were my husband or if you were my wife, I'd never make you cook. You wouldn't have to do those things that you do. And they use flattery to turn this person's heart from their spouse towards them. And all of a sudden, the marriage is broken. The relationship is torn apart. I also see it happen over and over and over between parents and children, right? The parents have kids and they're little and they're in their home and they're friends and they're teaching them and the, the kids respect them and they admire them. But then one day, I don't know if it's junior high or high school or college or whatever, but they meet this new friend, right? A new classmate, somebody comes to town, a new teammate, and, and all of a sudden, this new friend starts in the same way, making much of them, right? Man, you shouldn't have to do chores. You shouldn't, your parents shouldn't require you to have responsibilities like that. My parents don't make me do anything. 
You shouldn't have a bedtime. You shouldn't have such strict rules. You're, you're so many years old. You're 11 years old. You ought to have a phone by now, right? Whatever it is, they tell them these things, and all of a sudden now this child starts to look at their parent differently because of lies that are being told to them by an outsider. This relationship that has been built and that is, is on mutual care and respect for one another, and whether it's a marriage or between a child and their parent, or here between church members and a pastor, there's this, this long history between these people, but all of a sudden, in an instant, these lies from an outsider break that relationship. And I think that's exactly what we see here. Paul says, Galatians, you know me. I lived with you. I taught you the truth of God's word. I helped you to come to faith in Jesus. And I discipled you to be mature Christians. And you loved me and you cared for me. Even whenever I was sick and it was hard, you put yourself out for me. And now I'm your enemy. I'm the one that you don't love because of these liars that have come and are flattering you with things that are not true. And they're not doing it for the right reason. That's what Paul says. He said it's fine for somebody to flatter you, right? It's fine for somebody to give you compliments. It's fine for somebody to want to pursue you and make much of you if it's for a good reason. But that's not what they're doing. So Galatians, you have to understand this. What they're doing is they're courting you for their own good. And so Paul sees this. He sees what's happening to his friends, to these people that he loves, and he can't just walk away. He sees these liars turning their hearts. He sees the Galatians saying mean things about him. And it'd be easy to say, Paul, just don't deal with them anymore. You don't live there. You don't need them. Just walk away. Just cut ties. But those of you that have been there before, you say you can say it with me. I can't do that. I can't just walk away from them because I love them too much to just see them living in this destructive pattern. And point two this morning is this. Paul had a heart for the Galatians. Paul had a history with the Galatians, but he also had a heart for the Galatians. And his heart for them went to them so much that even when they were saying mean things about him, calling him and counting him as an enemy, he couldn't just walk away. Even though they were miles and miles and cities away, he couldn't just say, too bad, oh well, I'm just letting them go. He said, no, I care about you too much for that. I want you to see what they're doing. I want you to see what's happening so that you won't go down that road. And then we see again in these last two verses, we see again the personal appeal that he's making his love for them. In verse 19, he said, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. And, and in those first few, verses, first few words of verse 19, I want you to read that in a derogatory way. He's not calling them immature kids. That's not what he's saying. It's, it's this loving, fatherly tone where he's saying, My little children, people that I love and care about so deeply, 
And then he uses this interesting analogy here of, of him being a mother waiting for the, the day of their child's birth to come. But again, I don't want to get caught up in that. I think this is what Paul is saying there. Saying, I so desperately desire to see the day when you reach the spiritual maturity that you should have in Christ Jesus. The day when you are, are anchored enough that you won't, as it says in Ephesians 4, be tossed to and fro by the waves and winds of doctrine. Right? That, that, that you would be so spiritually mature that if, if a false teacher came to you and taught something that was a lie, you would know it was a lie. And you would reject that lie. He says, oh, I wish for that day so desperately that you'll be anchored in your faith. But they weren't there yet, so he felt like this pregnant mother who's just waiting for the day to come. He doesn't know exactly when it'll be here, but he's desiring for it to come. He wants to see them at this level of spiritual maturity that they should be. And point three is this. Paul had a hope for the Galatians. Right? He had a history with the Galatians. We see that. He had a heart for the Galatians, but he also had a hope for the Galatians. He hoped that one day, he prayed, he desired that one day they would be at this point of spiritual maturity. And he was still pursuing that in them. Though he was away from them, though he couldn't be with them, he writes this letter in order to admonish them and to turn them back to the truth because he hoped and desired to see them following Jesus as they should have been following Jesus. So I want to say this, that as I have sat with and studied this text this week, you may have sensed it, but this is a very personal text to me. Because as a pastor who has served as a pastor for years, this idea of, of desiring things for those that you have been spiritually discipling, but sometimes not seeing it come about, and feeling the pain of that is something that I have dealt with for many years. I know that you don't recognize this. This is why I share it with you. Because some of you think that you just see me on Sunday mornings and I, and I prepare a sermon. I preach that sermon and then we're done. And I'll see you again next Sunday unless you're one of the ones that come on Wednesday and you'll see me then too. But brothers and sisters, I want you to hear this. I don't just think about you during this hour on Sunday mornings. I, I keep up with you. I see your posts on social media. I read about you in the local paper. I hear about you from people in the community. And when you do good things, I celebrate those things. I'm excited about those. I have clippings in my office of things that you have done that I've cut out of the newspaper and that I keep. Because of how excited I am about the things that you've done. Sometimes I screenshot some of the things you post on Facebook that show your level of spiritual maturity. And I share them with others because I rejoice in those. Basically, every single day of my life, I think about you. And I want you to know that. I want you to hear that. And sometimes... That is a blessing. And the things I see and hear and read, I rejoice in. But there are other times that that's not the case. I see things, unbecoming things that you post on social media. I hear about addictions or divorces or following false teachers or neglecting your families 
I, I hear about those things, and I see those things in your life as well, and I desperately long to see you turn from those things and to turn and embrace fully the teachings of God's Word and following Christ Jesus as you should. I, 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 re, I desire desperately to see you joyfully loving your family. I desire that for you. I desire to see you investing your time and money in things that matter and that matter eternally. To see you loving God's Word and committing daily time to prayer and to see you sharing the gospel and to see you discipling your kids and to see you clean and free from addictions and things that are tearing you and your family apart. I desire that deeply and desperately. But there are times, there are times that through sharing the truth of God's word with you, especially in those kind of situations, that sharing the truth has made some of you or people that I've pastored at previous churches say unfair things about me. To count me as your enemy. People to leave the church because we've shared the truth of God's word with them. And I think I feel at least a little bit of what Paul feels here with these Galatians. When he says, you know me. You know how much I love you, and I'm only trying to do what is best for you. So how have I become your enemy? And again, I also circle back to recognizing this is not something that is only isolated to Paul or only isolated to me or only isolated to pastors. Some of you have felt this for your children, for your parents, for your siblings, for a spouse. You have felt these things. You have been betrayed in this way. You have seen someone that you've only done good for turn away from you. And you felt these feelings of hurt and disappointment and sometimes helplessness. And so I think whenever we see Paul dealing with this and dealing just so honestly with it, we have to ask this question, how does he deal with it? What does he do as an apostle following Jesus Christ? What does he do and what does God's word tell us to do when we find ourselves there? If you're sitting here this morning and this is very personal to you because you're thinking about somebody in your life that you felt this way for and you're asking, what do I do? I would recommend that we follow the example that Paul shows us here, that we continue to love those people. That we continue to desire the best for them. That we don't say, well, if they say that about me, then I'll say even worse about them. Right? If they're not coming to me, then I'm done with them. They are dead to me. It's what our flesh wants to do. But Christ Jesus in us, the Holy Spirit working in us says, no, we continue to pursue them with the truth and to pray for them, and to desire what is best for them. We're told in 1 Corinthians 13 that we love each other with a love that keeps no record of wrongs. Easier said than done, I know. We love each other, 1 Peter 4 says, with a love that covers a multitude of sins. We follow the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 18 that we forgive Seven times, 70 times, and we continue to want what is best, even for those that hurt us. It's what we're called to do. It's what we see here in Paul, but brothers and sisters, more than we see it here in Paul, 
we see it perfectly in the life of Jesus Christ. We see someone who is gracious, someone who is forgiving, someone who is even willing to give their own life to pursue those that have wronged them. We're reminded as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that Jesus Christ not only graciously forgives us, but that Jesus Christ came from heaven to here and lived a perfect life and died an atoning death, where he paid the penalty for the wrongs we have done so that we could be forgiven by him, so that we could be reconciled to him. And then he also came back to life and defeated death so that when we believe in him, we would also have the guarantee of victory over death. Brothers and sisters, here's our example of how to deal with people who have wronged us. We have Jesus Christ. We have the gospel. And so if you're here today and you're asking, how do I deal with this? I'd say you ask God to give you the strength to do it. You ask God to help you to, to forgive those who don't really, in your mind, deserve to be forgiven. And he can. He's shown the ability to do that, and he can give us the strength to do that too. This morning, I'll invite you to stand, and maybe you're here and you recognize that you are still an enemy of God, that you have not asked for forgiveness from him, that you've not come in faith to Jesus Christ. And if you need to do that, but you don't know exactly what that means, then come and let's talk about that. Let's talk about what it looks like to become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here and you just need to pray and ask God to help you to forgive somebody else in your life, do that. But we're also, during this time of response, going to observe the Lord's Supper. And so this morning, maybe what you need to do is to just hold that piece of bread that reminds us of his body that was broken. And to hold that cup of juice that reminds us of his blood that was shed. And to just thank him for the forgiveness that he has offered to us. This morning, while we observe the Lord's Supper, we're going to sing in Christ alone. Because we're reminded that the forgiveness that we have comes only through Christ alone. This morning, let me say before we begin this song that if you're with us and you're a guest, we do invite you, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you are a member of a local church, it's just not this one, we still invite you to observe the Lord's Supper with us this morning. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we do ask that you would allow these elements to pass by. We offer to you the truth of God's Word. We offer to you Christ that you would come to know Him, but we ask that you would not partake in the Lord's Supper this morning. But you respond in whatever way you feel appropriate, in whatever way the Lord's leading you to, as Brother Shane and the praise team leave us in this hymn of response.
If you haven't noticed, there's a trap door in the bottom of your juice cup that includes bread wafer. If you would take that first. This morning I want to read from 1 Corinthians 11 where the Apostle Paul gives us instructions about taking the Lord's Supper. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
he continues in verse 25 and says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you. You may be seated. 